Hello, I'm Olivia Potts, The Spectator's cookery columnist, and I'd like to let you know about The Takeaway, a new food and drink newsletter. Each month, I'll bring you recommendations straight to your inbox, focusing on what to eat, drink, try, read and listen to from The Spectator and beyond. To sign up, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash Olivia Potts. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, The Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And today we are delighted to be joined by Rachel Roddy. Rachel is a food writer and author based in Rome. Her first book, Five Quarters, won the André Simon Food Book Award and the Guild of Food Writers First Book Award. And her Guardian column is multi-award winning. Her second book, Two Kitchens, was published in 2017. And her third book, An A to Z of Pasta, will be published by Fig Tree Penguin on the 8th of July. Rachel, welcome to Table Talk. Oh, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Rachel, as listeners know, we always start in the very same place, each podcast, with a question, what are your earliest memories of food? Well, I feel my granny's pub's got an unfair bias here because I've just been writing about it. My mum's mum, my granny, had a pub in Oldham called The Gardener's Arms, as I say, like, I've been writing about my memories and how unreliable my memory is, especially around food. There's sort of quite a lot of fabricating. But anyway, I, <laughs> I have very strong memories of being in the pub. It was a Robinson's pub. It was a big pub, an old-fashioned Victorian pub. So it had a sort of main bar with this sort of great big horseshoe mahogany bar, very thick red carpets. I do remember that right because I have a photo. And there's a picture of me when I'm five outside the pub so I sort of, I imagine that I'm five and I remember sitting at the stools because they were incredibly high, they were just bar stools. And I remember being at that bar and I remember eating sandwiches and they used to have something called oven bottom buns, I suppose that were baked on the bottom of the oven, weren't they? And they were white like baps and they had quite a flowery top and the flowery top used to stick to the sort of top of my mouth. And I say, actually, I don't know if I really do remember eating those. I, I remember eating things at that bar. Auntie May made really good chips. There was a lot of sandwiches and there's a lot of crisps and a lot of fizzy drinks. And it was a very, very exciting place. So, yes, my, probably my earliest food memories are there. And what about at home? Was, was food a big part of your home life growing up? Yeah, I, it, was. it was. We, my mum and dad, were both born in Manchester, but then came down. I was, grew up in, in Hertfordshire which didn't feel nearly as interesting. And I'm the oldest of three. I've got a younger brother and a younger sister. And so I suppose five is probably when I start remembering stuff. I sort of remember everything. My mum's a nice cook, but as a food writer, I'm so aware of the sort of stuff I dig up and some of the stuff which is maybe imagined and not true and I want to be believed. But, you know, sort of recently I've been writing about the pub, but also, you know, frozen peas and fish fingers and roast chicken are all things I've been writing and thinking about lately. I'm sure there must be a word for sort of food writer's memory. Is it sort of selective, <laughs> selective or convenient? Narrative. <laughs> yeah, a lot of good food memories. Mum's a nice cook and there were three children and, and so it was sort of busy and, you know, I, I remember having more vivid memories actually of the sort of waxed tablecloth online too of actually what was on it. <laughs> and what, what were mealtimes like? When we were growing up, yeah, they were noisy and good. I liked, you know, I was a good little girl. I liked... So that would sort of follow. I, I remember being, you know, I, I, I liked everything. Everyone used to say that I was a sort of good little eater, which always sort of struck me as a bit odd. I thought I would say, well, sort of, I wasn't very little. 
that's one of the things Brain thinks I'm a good big eater. But I was always told that. I was always told I was very bonny. You know, later on, those would have sort of other implications, those, like those powerful words. But at the time, that felt like a really good thing. I remember being... I was quite proud of the fact that I wasn't fussy and that I ate everything and enjoyed everything. I had a sort of good appetite as a little girl growing up. Happy memories, happy memories of a... I worried quite a lot as, as a child, so about doing things right but but overall they were very very happy memories and did you did you learn to cook with your mum or cook alongside her yeah I suppose I did didn't I I was helpful I was very helpful so yes I do remember more than cooking I remember being helpful the washing up getting things (laughs) yeah and getting things and you know helping out I think just again being very aware of my role as a sort of big sister you know my brother Ben was two years younger than me and then Rosie was five years younger so you know, I suppose when you start remembering five, six, seven, I was sort of, I was very important then, wasn't I? Very responsible. <laughs> so I remember doing a lot of things, being quite involved. So again, nice memories, I think, most of them. And what about at school? We tend to have mixed memories of school food from our, from our guests. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I quite liked school meals. So Crabtree, yeah, I'm especially junior school. I sort of, the other day we were having a long conversation about different coloured custards that we had a di- and someone said that you can't have had a different one every day. I was convinced that we had different <laughs> colour custards on every day. So what would that have been? Sort of, you know, plain custard, strawberry. Chocolate. Mint. We had mint. Chocolate. Yes, it, that was it. Someone was debating mint. What would the other one have been? Mint, strawberry, chocolate. I don't know, because you're not going to have a blue. <laughs> I mean, perhaps. I think we only had pink and green at my school. And the, the green was mint. We used to have that with cornflake tart. Oh. That, was, that was what we used to have at school. That's, I mean, that's real... Late 80s, early 90s school food, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a bit older than you, so I mean, I'm, I'm 40. I was born in 1972, so yeah, so the school was... Again, I was sort of good. I sort of always ate everything. I never had a, a problem with eating anything. And, um, and then I went to my, my senior school. It was just a state school, but it was also a boarding school. So there was a sort of proportion of boarders. So they would always have tea. So I felt we sort of had quite a good dining room that was really always busy. And then some really good memories there. I mean, I still long... Maybe I bet you'd be the person to do that for me. I still long to have a sort of iced bun like they made them at school. They were really doughy. <laughs> that's, that's my wheelhouse, I think. Yes, <laughs> school, yes. school dinner iced buns is just, just my kind of thing. They were really bready. They were really, they were really sort of solid and dense. I mean, you know, you could do a long-distance run after one of those with sort of <laughs> thick, with a sort of rug of white icing. So again, yes, probably quite good memories of school meals, I think. And how about, Rachel, when you moved to London to study drama, what were your memories of food at that stage in life? It's funny, I, I sort of didn't talk about that. I mean, they were sort of complicated, I suppose, in lots of ways. It's, interestingly enough, I wrote something recently. I wrote a, a piece, my first sort of longer-form piece for a sort of a series of essays about cooking. And I wrote about my sort of life through the lens of all my different cookers which I worked out there were 21. Wow. Again, there was a little bit of sort of, you know, moving around that, starting with the, obviously the very earliest one I don't remember because that was my mum's sort of, you know, with a higher eye grill. But I wrote about them and actually it was a good way, it was a very interesting way for me to, a, as a sort of biography and to sort of look at the difficult periods because there were very difficult periods. So put it this way, having been an incredibly sort of bonny, obliging child who ate everything you know as a teenager I've struggled in many ways so had a sort of complicated relationship with food I think which took all sorts of all sorts of different twists and turns as I say it was very interesting to to use the cookers especially sort of writing wise because I'm always haunted by the fact of you know someone's one saying to me oh, oh like well don't write about that nobody wants to read about that Rachel like that part <laughs> of your life 
just skip to Rome. But it was quite a good way to talk about the difficult phase. And there were really difficult periods in my life I spent, you know, and that was sort of through food often. And it's not that I don't want to talk about it, it's more that it's just it's sort of finding the words for it. As I say, writing about it through cookers was really interesting because it allowed me to it allowed me to sort of sum up these massive things that otherwise would have required probably a sort of book and maybe more skill than I have or ability to sort of do that. Well, it's that looking at something that, that is in flux through something very static. And I, I love that idea of, of that being the prism for, for examining any area of life, but particularly a, a really difficult one that, that's fraught with emotion. What was it that not clarified your relationship with food, but brought you out the other side or brought you to a place where food was a source of joy for you? That's such a good question. I, I suppose it was, I mean, looking back sort of quite physically at the time, so working backwards, I came to Rome when I was 16 years ago, so I was 33. So I sort of had my 20s in London. I'd gone to drama school when I was 22. And I would say there were 10, you know, starting in my teens, there was difficult, but, you know, in my 20s, it wasn't all unhappy. Again, going back to the writing about the different cookers, you know, I mean, I was able to sum that up in, in a very short paragraph, was that, you know, I, because of difficulties with food, I spent a year of my life in a hospital, for example. And actually, I never saw the cookers, because I'm assuming they were great big industrial cookers in the kitchen of the Royal Free Hospital. And I'm actually, you know, that sort of says a lot about... <laughs> that period of my life it was um, mm. so I suppose yes I really struggled which of course is sort of so much more than food isn't it but of course you know when you've got a sort of eating disorder that becomes the main feature doesn't it and so you do have to deal with that I think when I came out of hospital I went to drama school I think I still struggled but actually looking back maybe sort of not as much as I thought I did you know when you become ill in your teens or I felt this and sort of labeled with being ill that sort of defined you and I, then I defined myself in that way. So actually, you know, I was the person who was, you know, who was anorexic or was bulimic or had an eating disorder or who was depressed. And so that sort of became me. And actually, I realised that there was a period when I had, you know, physically there were symptoms. But actually, coming out the other side of my early 20s, you know, I was a young woman who struggled with lots of things. And, and I think I managed. But I, looking back, it, I wasn't wasn't that I didn't enjoy food because I think even when you have a problem with food I mean food was always the solution (laughs) food was always the focus so always sort of brought me joy however strange that might have seemed but I would say yes you that very very long answer to your question I suppose when I there was a definite break when I left for Italy Richard what, what was the moment that you thought you know I need to go to Rome what inspired that well that was just I mean that was a it was a very impulsive thing to do I did leave very suddenly. I quite a lot of things had sort of come to an end, or rather hadn't started. My acting career, I, you know, I'd sort of worked and I hadn't worked. So I had that. That sort of wasn't. I don't know what I expected from that. And so a lot of things came to an end, including a, a sort of long relationship. And I just, yeah, it was a very, very, very sudden decision. I mean, and again, I'm, I'm so aware of sort of how. I mean, I've written about this in books. You know, I, I didn't pack any bags and I just got on an aeroplane and came to Italy. I was in a position to do so financially because I'd worked and I was in that position. So I'm very aware of that sort of privilege that allowed me just to take off and go to Rome. Prior to your, your moving to Rome, were you cooking? Were you cooking Italian food or British food or nothing at all? How does, how does your cooking intersect with that move? It's interesting. I mean, I've always cooked a lot. I suppose I did cook 
Italian food. I'd never been to Italy. I'd been once when I was 18 to Florence, so it wasn't something... I suppose my points of reference were the kind of cooking of my mum, so sort of English food with a very much a sort of northern slant. Mm. Always when I'd been on holiday to France, and I'd be, we'd been a lot to Greece. We spent a lot of time in Greece, so I suppose they were my sort of points of reference cooking. Probably relatively little Italian, actually. I've always been a keen cook, and again, it's a little bit like, you know, even if you sort of... And defining those things, even if you sort of have difficulties with food... You know, it never stopped me sort of cooking very, very keenly at times. And tell us about your early days in Rome. What what were your kind of initial culinary discoveries when you arrived there? Well, I came to... I went to Naples and then I travelled around Sicily and then I came to Rome and I I came to Testaccio, which is this quarter shaped like a piece of cheese. I say the same thing every time. It's very sort of quite small, quite distinctive, geographically quite distinctive. It's quite sort of cut off... You've got the two cut sides and then uh, the river. And I suppose it was here, as I said, I knew almost nothing about Roman food. I think I, I sort of knew carbonara, but I had no idea about it. So everything was a discovery. Everything was new. I was so relieved to have a change of environment. I mean, it was all the sort of things, you know, it was all the sort of things that I needed. I just needed a complete change of environment, a new place. I remember a friend saying to me, sort of, you can't run away. And I thought, well, you know... <laughs> I just did (laughs) so it was very nice to be away and so everything was new and that was a really it did feel like that I was discovering everything new for the first time and then yeah I met this whole new world of of food but also you know I write about this every every week I sometimes feel I write the same column is it true like (laughs) they say that there are sort of aren't they seven stories I sort of think well I've got one (laughs) that's all you need (laughs) and I just I just repeat it which is just a bit every single week you know when I went to Rome and I sort of saw a broccoli or when I went to Rome and saw someone cooking pasta the first time but I suppose it was a way it was a way writing about food means a sort of way into writing but yes it did feel like a whole new world but also then as you sort of know you know actually Roman food is surprisingly I found lots of similarities with traditional English food particularly traditional English northern food so there's lots of greens in Rome and and of course where I am in Testaccio is the old slaughterhouse district so lots of offal and sort of you know slow braised beef and oxtail and liver and kidneys and it's very different the way Romans cook the food but also incredibly similar and that was a sort of nice way in for me. And did you do you have mentors in the city who taught you to cook? So again living in Tessaccio yes I mean I met people quite quickly I, I didn't speak any Italian which in a way was quite good because it meant that I I suppose I was looking at things in a different you know but sort of beyond language I mean, what I mean is sort of what people were doing with their hands. It was nice to cook. I cooked quite a lot with neighbours, with friends. I was teaching English at the beginning, so I was sort of... I would ask everybody, really. And it's a great way to... And I really did ask people to show me how to make things. And, and then, you know, of course, was it sort of eating in local trattorias? It is very sort of centred around food. I mean, it's, it's quite claustrophobic. It's Roman food. But I did ask a lot of people, and that was basically my, where I, why I started writing a blog. I'm interested in what you say about people sort of saying, you know, skip to Rome, Rachel, get, get to 2005 when, when things start to get interesting. And, and obviously your career as a food writer began after 2005 and it, it's been hugely lauded. And the majority of the columns that you write and the contents of your books are about living in Testaccio and, and about Roman cooking. Do you feel like that erases some of your food experience? Would you like to be writing about I don't know, oven bottom buns or sandwiches in pubs. You, you said you've been writing about that a bit recently. How, how does it feel to have, not to be pigeonholed, that's not what I mean, but to have that expertise area? 
Yeah, that's a good... Yeah, I, I suppose it's something I think about a lot. I mean, I suppose I do sort of, you know, childhood sort of weaves in because it's all sort of connected up. But yes, I do sometimes feel that I have sort of boxed myself in a bit. Also because I think there was an awareness of, you know, I came here as a sort of foreigner and sort of who am I to write about Italian food? I mean, you know, I do sometimes think, why, like, why am I writing about Italian food? This is sort of ridiculous even now. And I sort of got round that by, I suppose, specialising, feeling I would write about my very small area and I think that's again sort of why I someone said you know that sort of being a, a sort of camel tethered to a pole <laughs> I'm sort of tethered <laughs> to this area but yeah it it does and and of course the columning the guardian is a kitchen in Rome mm. so I mean I do try and write about other things but I suppose yes that has been sort of what I've specialized in it's interesting isn't it you know I mean often I'm always thinking as a writer oh I sort of want to do other things I want to be sort of write about more things and of course when it comes down to it I'm like oh god no <laughs> when I came to when I came to Rome in 2005 and saw broccoli <laughs> yeah that's much more that's sort of much much safer which of course why the blog the blog was so interesting you know writing a blog mm. and do you feel Rachel that you're do you feel like you're becoming Roman do you feel very much at home there I do feel very at home here I don't think I feel at all Roman Although it's very familiar. I say I've only ever been here. I mean, looking out the window, I mean, I, you know, in the, in the same building for six... I mean, we've brief periods, not in this building, but in this building. So, yes, everything's about it's very familiar. The smells, the, the accent is very familiar. And, that, and that now my little boy is half Roman, so in him I see it. I see bits of me. Of course, you know, he has two languages, so when he speaks English, because his point of reference with English is sort of me... Um, well, and also TikTok, so <laughs> he's developing quite an interesting, interesting accent. But, you know, he does sound like a mini-me, and then he's really, really Roman and what, laughs at my... Do you cook him traditional Italian food, or do you cook English food as well for him? I cook both for him, and he, and he sort of likes everything. Yeah, I mean, I have been aware of that. I, do, I mean, not, not as much as I'd like, but, yeah, we do. I mean, I do make quite a lot of traditional English things, cakes and and roasts and roast potatoes and it's a real mix of things and that was a good sort of point Libby yeah I mean I suppose I do because actually I mean in my column it's all Italian food but I mean at home I cook I cook a sort of great mix of things and also it's interesting isn't it how I sort of I sounds a sort of silly thing to say but the day someone was saying to me on Instagram sort of do you cook anything else and actually I do but I often don't post it because I sort of think especially now I've got this pasta book I think oh no this is sort of what I've got to do what <laughs> I've got to be and of course it's a lot more I mean, the food here is quite traditional. You know, Romans do very often, and I don't sort of want to generalise, but, you know, eat a lot of Roman food, whereas I've always been, you know, eating lots of different things. I've always felt I could sort of fit in anywhere, really. I'd sort of be happy anywhere. I remember a sort of Italian friend saying to me, well, I sort of couldn't live anywhere else because I'd miss the food too much. And I remember thinking, that's so strange. I think I'd sort of, I'd be fine anywhere. I mean, it would never cross my mind to sort of not be comfortable or, or not find sort of nice food anywhere I was or or maybe not find nice food. It's it sort of, you know what I mean? It's sort of, it, it, it seemed a bizarre thing. And obviously, Rachel, you've been living in Rome during what must have been a pretty extraordinary period to be in the city. What, what's it been like during the pandemic in terms of food and restaurants and just the general kind of food culture there? Well, we, I mean, it, we locked down quite hard. It wasn't it the 10th of March, I think we locked down. I think it was a few weeks before England did and it happened very quickly. And I heard it because... Most of the shops and restaurants here have metal, you know, roller blinds that, brrr, that sound like a sort of machine gun. And I remember we got a news report. We sort of knew before that the schools were going to close. And it was still when we were all, I was sort of still saying, 
is this really going to happen? But we went into a red and we, we had the sort of total lockdown. Was it Tuesday night? I think the schools have been off since Thursday. And was it, no, sorry, the Monday night, the shots closed. And it was like... I mean, Rome's always a bit like, because of those, those blinds, you know, because shops close in the afternoon, it's always a bit like everyone's got their eyes shut. Because all the shop fronts and restaurants disappear because they go behind these roller blinds. And so it was a very, very definite feeling of things being closed, I'm sure, like it was in London. And we live, we live above a bar and a restaurant and a bread shop. So the bar and the restaurant, they were all shut. The bread shop was, they were off. Like, they were the next morning, they were like, you know, masked, masking tape lines on the ground. Wow. And it was very, and the market stayed open, but it was a surreal time. And the city was very, very, very quiet. I think just like London. And were you able to order food from places or was everything just properly shut? Things were properly shut. But as I say, we, we, there's a lot of shops where we are. And say we're right above a bread shop that sort of sells everything. And the market stayed open. And I think markets were very good. I mean, Italy, Rome did respond very quickly and everyone was masked immediately. There was sort of no... It was a sort of decree. There was no ambiguity about that. Some people did question it. But we didn't... It'll be interesting to sort of look at the big picture. This second lockdown, restaurants did pivot into sort of doing takeaways, but it was very different here. In the beginning, nothing was open. And some restaurants never, never sort of pivoted into anything because Roman food is mostly pasta, so actually a lot of restaurants just sort of didn't know what to do. It was interesting that it was sort of younger and sort of slightly different sorts of restaurants that were then able to sort of pivot into a takeaway or, or, or I don't know, sell roast chickens or hamburgers. But for a lot of restaurants and trattorias, it's been pretty devastating. And did you see the same boom in home baking that we've had in the UK? I mean, it's a bit of a cliche now to talk about banana bread and everyone taking up sourdough, but it certainly did happen, as cliche as it might be. Is that something that happened in Italy? Yeah, it did. It did, really did. You know, I remember sort of the, the, you know, in the beginning, I suppose a bit like the UK, you know, in the beginning sort of, there wasn't quite the same rush on shops, I don't think. But I do remember the sort of flower section of the supermarket. Initially, there was, there was sort of no flower. And then sort of two weeks later, there was just three shelves of flour. And, you know, before we knew it, supermarkets still fresh yeast here and bakery shops too, but in sort of little capsules. And next thing you know, there were sort of butter-sized packs of fresh yeast. I think I still have two in my freezer, <laughs> sort of chiselling it off. But yes, there was, I think, yeah, a huge amount of more people baking. I mean, I think probably, I'd be interested to know sort of about bread. Again, you know, we, in Testaccio, there's, there's still two bakeries that are really busy and really good. So, of course, it wouldn't stop somebody from making delicious sourdough bread, but I think there's less inclination to make bread when you sort of live near a really good, sort of very everyday bakery. So... Yeah. And what have you found yourself cooking over the past year? Are there kind of particular dishes that you've sort of found comfort in? Well, I was, I was writing and testing a pasta book, so I had... <laughs> a lot of pasta. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of pasta. It's interesting. I mean, I think I probably did those early days, you know. I mean, we were allowed to go out every day and go shopping, and actually we do live above this bakery, so as long as you were sort of masked and distanced... But, you know, I, I think I was sort of more resourceful in my cooking. I mean, I, I, we always eat quite a lot of sort of pulses, but I do remember Vincenzo sort of begging me to stop cooking lentils. <laughs> I just sort of... Well, of course, lentils being the perfect pulse, aren't they? Because they don't require sort of any sort of tins of beans. And, but yes, I was. And actually, it worked. It worked out quite well in the sense that I was writing and testing the pasta book. So that sort of rhythm and being here... Gosh, I've forgotten it now. It seems... It was just a strange world, wasn't it? It was like being suspended. I mean, we're still sort of locked down here, but the kids are back of school and, you know... Well, actually, we're in yellow now, having been in red again. And tell us about the pasta book. 
it's slightly different to your last two books in that it is this kind of survey, I suppose, of something that is Italian rather than particularly Roman. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, perfect. What's the experience been like to sort of take that huge survey of, of, of a massive carb? <laughs> I think when I was thinking of writing the proposal... I did have it in my mind to write about pasta, but, but it always seems sort of preposterous. I mean, there's 1,300 identified names for pasta shapes, and it's just enormous. It just felt like this enormous thing. The first title, I, I wanted to call it The Shape in Water, and then, of course, just endless about... I think that's the, sort of the name of a film, and then, of course, Fifty Shades of Pasta. But once I had 50, and then I had the idea of 50 stories about 50 shapes, and once I knew that it was only going to be about 50 it felt manageable. And then, of course, I had waves of huge anxiety about which 50. <laughs> but, but actually, it was quite interesting that I sort of had some of the stories I knew I wanted to write about the sort of history of it. You know, there were certain shapes which seemed quite important. Rigatoni, for example, the Romans love, you know, that I, I knew, obviously, I'd be writing about spaghetti, that I knew that I would be interested to going to Bologna and learning about sort of hand-rolled sfoglia and tagliatelle. So after initial panic, I sort of realised that these pieces, some of the pieces were sort of already chosen. And as soon as I had that in my head, it felt like I was making a jigsaw. And as soon as Amazing Julietta Nam was on board, who sort of enthusiasm sort of propelled me, when I was that I was doing, making a jigsaw, not the jigsaw, you know, I suppose if you did make a jigsaw about pasta, if it was 1,300 pieces, it would be as big as this <laughs> kitchen, wouldn't it? But once I knew that I was just making a, a small jigsaw, mm. and the idea being that the 50 stories would form a picture of pasta not the picture, I then felt on safe ground and then I could enjoy doing it. And it was fun choosing the shapes. I mean, I'm now aware of sort of what I've left out, but actually it was interesting writing this book. It was more as much about what I didn't write as what I wrote. Do you have a favourite pasta? Oh, I suppose I really love tubes and I really love rigatoni and mezzemane, okay, the little short sleeves, the sort of little short tubes. Romans really love those. And I suppose they're sort of very familiar to me and I do like them. But I really, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed writing it a lot and I enjoyed... Again, it was manageable. And Juliet really helped me with this. Juliet was wonderful in sort of containing me, reminding me all the time that you don't have to do everything, which is always nice, isn't it? Which with a single ingredient book is entirely necessary but really difficult. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's the reason I love writing about food because I suppose the best food writing is only writing, isn't it? It's sort of writing as you talked about here through the lens of food but if you're always coming back to a certain point it sort of contains you doesn't it because I mean mm. for me the best food writing is just beautiful writing it's writing about life yeah and you know your book the perfect example and you know for me food writing was always perfect because I got to read what I loved probably identify hugely with it and then I got to sort of consume it at the end <laughs> it mm. seems the very the very sort of greatest thing but it was lovely to keep coming back to the pasta shapes and as I say I I've worried I feel I always have to have a disclaimer. I find myself justifying my book to Italians, if sort of apologising. But it is 50 stories about 50 shapes, and I hope that it sort of makes a picture of pasta that's quite complete and very edible. Normally, as a final question, we ask, what is your desert island meal, your sort of last days on earth, final, final dish? Now, you do not have to choose pasta. You are welcome to choose pasta, but do not feel obliged to choose pasta. We will, we will forgive it if you don't. I think I'd like it to be quite a long meal, so I suppose I could... Oh, yeah. And again, maybe this is just what I'm hankering for. I would probably want fish. 
a fish meal and maybe sort of by the sea. We haven't been to Sicily. We usually go a lot. Vincenzo Sicilian, we haven't been, because like all of us, I haven't been anywhere. So I suppose fried fish and then I really like spaghetti with clams. And then there would have to be sort of potatoes, fried potatoes. So yeah, that would be it. So fried fish, spaghetti con le vongole, and then a big baked fish with potatoes. And then let me think about pudding. A large selection of ice cream. And I, can, I go, oh. can, I be, can, I, can I go in an ice cream shop and, and have that? <laughs> Absolutely. And then a bar for coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel, is there a specific ice cream shop in Rome that you always return to? I'm pretty easy to please, actually, with ice cream. I don't think I'm very discerning. I mean, I do like really nice cream, but I like all of them. I like probably the sort of best ice cream is Torce, which is up on, on Viale Aventina, just near us. But there's several. I like, and I, during lockdown, we went to the Big Giolitti in the centre, which maybe you went to when you were in Rome. It was amazing because it's massive. And, of course, it's usually full, 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 full of people it's sort of amazing it's like almost like a train station they're very organized you know they've got all sort of like dividing sections where you realize that the queue will probably normally sort of snake through the shop and of course in lockdown there was just nobody there and we went you know we we went a lot in the on those sort of hot summer days there so I suppose that feels like a favorite favorite ice cream shop and I really like lots of flavors but I particularly like the combination of coffee and stracciatella so the sort of vanilla with little, you know, little bits of chocolate in it, which I think goes some way to easing my desire for chocolate chip ice cream, which you, <laughs> I absolutely love, but you very rarely find in Italy. Yeah. So that's as close as you're going to get. Yeah. That is a great choice. Yeah. Somebody once made me very cross. It doesn't happen very often by telling me that the Italians didn't have it because it was a sort of not a proper flavour. And I just said well (laughs) (laughs) Rachel thank you very much for joining Table Talk and Rachel's new book is out on the 8th of July Thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do subscribe. And if you've really enjoyed it, please do leave us a star rating and review. It really helps us out. 